0: What I want to present to you today are some pieces of a long-term, uh, probably over 20 years study of uh, compassion and Buddhist thought. Um, I'm somewhat concerned that it'll be taken as a as an effort at uh, uh, cynical myth-busting or something like that. I want to be really clear that uh, uh, I'm personally inspired by this ideal myself, um, but uh, I think there. are very consistently in Buddhist thought, you find that the closer you look, the more your expectations are upset. Uh, And if we want to really understand these values uh, and sort of have a chance to really read uh, the history of Buddhism in relationship to its values, we need to understand it better than we have. Uh, I want to thank you all for being here. I had a little bit of a vision of an empty room since. Uh, they're having a conference up at Berkeley for graduate students in Buddhist studies, and I never saw such a beautiful day in my entire life, so thank you. I think everybody's making like extra merit for being here today. Um, I want to thank, before I start, um, the Tibetan scholars that are always a part of my work. Um, everything I do is a collaboration. Um, none of it would be possible without their support and help. Uh, particularly Geshe Samten of the Central Institute for Tibetan Studies, in Sarnath, and uh, the amazing research assistant there, uh, Lozang Dorje Ruffling, and uh, Sangit Hengdar from the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives, who's supported me ever since I've done my my doctoral work. There are pieces uh, left out of this, if anyone's interested. uh, I've also done uh, a lot of work on the relationship with Hindu values of Ahimsa. And also uh, a piece on Ashoka that we might have uh, presented here, who I think is also a a very uh, richly misconceived and uh, romanticized figure. So let me begin. I'm going to do three things. So one is sort of talk about the basic um, values of compassionate killing and compassionate violence in Mahayana Sutras. I guess another piece we could try and touch on if anyone has questions is uh, how this works out in Theravada Buddhism and in the so called uh, Hinayana. Um, Then I'm going to look at uh, a particular sutra that sort of describes when a Buddhist king may torture, when he may uh, go to war, how and why, uh, in these violence and punitive ways. And then finally, to Having taken a good look at the traditions of uh, Mahayana Buddhism, ask ourselves if maybe the tantric traditions have been read against uh, an exaggerated pacifism in Mahayana Buddhism to the extent that they look like some kind of outrageous new uh, ethical dimension of Buddhism. Um, I remember when I was a graduate student at Harvard uh, there was a textbook to call it Degenerate Buddhism if uh, maybe we need to reread that and have another look at uh, what tantric values really are so um, studies so far have been reluctant to accept that compassionate killing may even be a source of merit making choosing instead to see compassionate killing as an act of self-sacrifice in which the bodhisattva voluntarily enters hell as a consequence i'll argue here that these opinions have been influenced by several Important mistranslations of passages that have been touched on for the interpretation of Buddhist ethics. Aryadeva, who is considered the great, the next great figure after Nagarjuna and the Madhyamaka lineage, wrote in the 3rd to 4th century CE because of their intention, both the bad, Ashupang, and the good, shubham become auspicious for a bodhisattva. In many cases of similar statements can be cited from both the sutras and shastras and all the figures. Considered here. Sangha, Shantideva, Arya Deva, and Chandrakirti, these are, if not the greatest figures in Indian Buddhism, they're sort of the greatest figures in the Western study of Indian Buddhism. I agree on the basic point that a bodhisattva can do what is forbidden or inauspicious. The Sangha's Mahayana Sangraha for instance, says that any act is possible, including sex, killing, and robbery with the aim of helping beings. And that a bodhisattva, should a bodhisattva take life in this way, there's no fault but a spread of much merit. Uh, Chandrakirti, in the early 7th century, first comments on Aryadeva's verse, by defining the inauspicious as that which leads to lower forms of rebirth, and the auspicious as that which reverses the process of samsara. So anything that sort of uh, extends your stay in samsara is inauspicious, anything that reverses that or reduces your stay in samsara is auspicious, that's the way you can measure any acts, goodness or badness, you could say. Um, since for Chandakirti, any act that shortens the cycle of rebirth becomes auspicious, the possibility is open that the apparently inauspicious can lead to what is auspicious. The act of killing is neither a necessary evil nor merely value-free. And this is something that's argued by Peter Harvey, who's written in the most important text so far on Buddhist ethics. But it's clearly auspicious. He then proceeds to offer, Chandrakirti does, a list of particular examples rather than an abstract analysis. And this is the way Buddhists do ethics. Say. Instead of sort of distilling a principle out of a, a body of literature, they'll give you a body of literature that's the interpretation of a, a principle. The first example is of, of a physician, certainly one of the most important metaphors for a bodhisattva. The physician amputates a finger that's been bitten by a poisonous snake thus preventing the spread of greater suffering. And this is a common example in the Indian world. Uh, Drawing on the same example, Jinnabhadra, a sixth century giant, said, a doctor has to cause pain, but is still not injuring and innocent because his intention is pure. There can be nonviolence even when an external act of violence has been committed. It's important here to recognize that non-harm may actually require physical violence, and that restraint from that violence may be harmful. An authoritative Buddhist precedent for Chandrakirti is found in Nagarjuna's Ratnavali, an epistle by the foundational Mahayana figure to a Buddhist king. He writes, just as it it is said that it will help to cut off a finger bitten by a snake, so the jinnah says that if it will help others, one should even cause pain. This is his advice to a great king. Chandrakirti offers another example of a hunter who kills one of his sons to prevent both from dying. The two sons are pictured as being across a ravine, and so there's no way to get to them. And they're having a fight. One of the sons attacks the other son, and both of them are going to tumble to the death down this cliff. And it puts the father in the position that if he shoots one of the sons to death with his bow, that at least one son will live. And the story sort of puts you in this position to say, isn't this a rational way to compassionately kill? Uh, This case shows the use of violence to stop violence, and the same concern for reducing the degree of harm in the example of amputation. In another example, a father accidentally kills his beloved only son. The son has gone on a long journey and he comes back completely emaciated and sick. It's typical graduate student getting back in India. (laughs) And his father is so delighted to see his beloved son that he just crushes him with a great big hug, you know, and he accidentally kills his own son. So Chandra Kirti is trying to say uh, that the context matters, that the intentions matter, that the situation matters in terms of how you read killing. Um, so this clever example illustrates the fundamental importance of intention by making deep affection result in killing. Further examples are offered of a caravan leader, another pervasive metaphor for a bodhisattva, shooting a lion to protect his company. And there's a bunch of other interesting ones. The most famous one, and this is an example, that's known throughout the Buddhist world. Um, it was uh, actually used by the Chinese communists to motivate the Chinese Buddhists to go to war against the uh, Koreans. And it was used also by Koreans to motivate uh, Korean Buddhists to fight the communists from the South. Uh, it's known by every Buddhist. It's a, a very pervasive story of the ship's captain, Jataka. And the Jataka, if you don't know, is a story of the past lives of a Buddha. Uh, In the Upaya Kaushalya Sutra, one of the most influential sutras probably in in Buddhist thought, I would say, um, puts the Buddha in a past life in a position um, that maybe I'll just sort of modernize this. He's on a plane and there's a terrorist on the plane, and the terrorist is going to kill all 500 passengers on the plane. If he tells the passengers on the plane that uh, there's a terrorist on board, they'll riot and they'll become murderers. And interestingly, this has actually happened on planes since 9-11. People have rioted and killed people on the plane who weren't really terrorists. Um, so, he can't do that. And he's in the, the, the story deliberately sort of frames things in a way that makes it only possible to kill this man. And in effect, he prevents these 500 people from becoming murderers, and he prevents them from becoming murdered. And most importantly, he has the compassionate intention to prevent the terrorist from actually becoming a terrorist himself having killing these people and suffering infinite eons in the hell realms. So in effect, everybody benefits. And the story ends uh, by the ship's captain stabs the thief to death with a short spear. Uh, and in this way he skillfully benefits the potential mass murderer by saying from hell, the merchants. And so the story is completely double-edged. It basically says that the the bodhisattva kills to prevent other people from suffering from the karma of killing people. So it's very interesting how they sort of work this out, providing an ethic that uh, uh, actually allows compassion and killing, at the same time that compassion and killing is to prevent the, the very danger of killing without compassion. So all these sources that tell this story, Chandra Kyrgyi tells the story, Shantideva tells the story, Sangha tells the story. Um, just uh, maybe in the ancient world, as well as the modern world, it's a very well-known story to Buddhists. Um, they all agree that uh, the Bodhisattva makes vast merit. And this was a thing that was misinterpreted by Beale, the first uh, translation of the Siksha so I think was a very influential kind of mistake. He read the passage that said that samsara is reduced for this person, or. Uh, by actually reading it somehow that he, he, set, he set himself back and took on a terrible karma burden. Uh, so, in the Mahayana Sangha, uh, a Sangha says that even if a Bodhisattva, in his superior wisdom and skillful means, should commit the ten sinful acts of murder, etc., he would nevertheless remain unsullied and guiltless, gaining instead immeasurable merits. Uh, Davis, Shiksha Shamucharya says that the very things that send others to hell send a bodhisattva to the Brahma Lokas, a traditional result of generating compassion. This is consistent with a general pattern in Mayana thought wherein the more pure a bodhisattva's intention is to go to hell, the less likely they are to do so. I've not yet located a single example where a bodhisattva killer suffers any negative consequences. In fact, in every single case I've found, they make immeasurable merit. This is a huge sort of. I used to think of it like sort of a, like a pinball machine, sort of racking up massive amounts of points or something like shaking and ringing. Uh, it's like this huge sort of bonus zone that they get into when they're curious. Um, Chandrakirti seems to realize the possibilities for exploitation in this idea. Later in the same commentary, he rages against a king who seeks to justify violence for the sake of maintaining moral order. Uh, for Chandra Kirti, the reason Bodhisattvas are not destroyed by such violence while others are is that they possess a controlled mind with a compassionate intent. The opposite is obviously true. Those who do these things without the qualities of a Bodhisattva <coughs> face fantastically negative consequences. Commenting on the Bodhisattvas, Bodhisattva Bhumi's validation of violence that's back to Asanga, Jinnaputra included the qualification that such action should not be attempted by the uncultivated, the dull, the partisan, or the literal. So what I'm sort of introducing here is one of the real questions is, uh, is this a supererogatory ethic where it's sort of a, a way of, uh, in a sense, idealizing a possible mode of, of ethical behavior that no one should try at home? Or is this sort of an imitatio buni kind of thing, or imitatio bodhisattva? And the what I want to argue is that the water is actually very muddy here. Um, In the Upaya Kaushalya Sutra itself, uh, translated into Chinese in the third century, the stated purpose of the story is to actually discourage others from murder rather than to validate compassionate violence. The Buddha demonstrates the power of karma to a group of potential murderers by showing himself to be pierced by a thorn as an outcome of sparing the thief in his earlier life as uh, the ship captain, whose name is Mahakarana, great compassion. So even the portrayal of compassionate murder is used to discourage murder by ordinary people. However, the sutra has already shown, consistent with the later interpretations of the Sangha, Shantideva, and Chandrakirti, that the Buddha in fact made enough merit through this murder to reverse samsara by a hundred thousand kalpas, and the thorn is merely an upaya of the Buddha, not an actual karmic outcome. Later in the same sutra, the Buddha knowingly allows a female non-Buddhist ascetic to be murdered. The explanation is that he saw her lifetime was exhausted, and there's is a very strong uh, motif in Indian Buddhism. Once your time is exhausted, you're, you're done. There's nothing that can be done about that. Bad. And he wanted the discredit to fall on her tear-dicked killers, even though, as the text has already shown, they will suffer a horrible fate in the hell realms. So both allowing and preventing murder is validated. No special outcomes or actions have absolute value. There are multiple interrelated concerns here, including proportionality, you know, do both sons die or one son? Uh, intention, virtue, uh, the situation, the consequences conceived from a multiple life perspective, and this is always important in these stories. In general, compassionate killing is a supererogatory ethic, not one of the imitation. It's double-edged in opening the possibility for murder precisely to prevent its horrific karmic outcome. Yet, Chandrakirti's earthy examples, have a double-edged quality in suggesting there's something commonsensical about compassionate violence. If a bodhisattva is like a physician cutting off a poisoned finger, then the physician is also like a bodhisattva. Surely, as in the giant understanding, a doctor cutting off a finger need not be a great bodhisattva to avoid terrible karmic harm. Part of the power of Chandrakusi's examples is that they appeal to natural human responses to protect our children and companions. In a later section, we'll see that the discipline of children is another important example with the sense of spare the danda, spoil the child. One would expect Buddhists to attempt as far as they were able to behave like bodhisattvas when faced with difficult moral choices. Consistent with the philosophy of emptiness, no specific behaviors can be excluded as inherently harmful or inauspicious. So in this context, nonviolence is a mistranslation for ahimsa, which, we be, which would be better translated as not harm non-harm would be a better general characterization in describing mahayana buddhist ethics than non-violence remembering that non-harm almost always excludes violence but also maintaining the high tolerance for ambiguity necessary to appreciate buddhist ethics so having set that as sort of a, a general pattern and i think this is the, this is this is the general mahayana ethic of violence i want to take a look at this uh, sutra the uh, you have to take a very deep breath, actually, before you pronounce the title. And it fortunately, it has a, a shorter title, the Satyabhaj it. Parivarta. It's actually, a, there's a lot of confusion about the name and a number of people to do work and you realize they're working on the same text or did to not to realize this is quoted throughout the Mahayana literature. It's a very, very popular text. Um, the earliest uh, citation is probably by Nagarjuna, but um, you have to be very careful about that. The Sutra Simuchaya, which some of you may know, is a compendium of sutra passages, a lot like Six Deva's Siksha uh, Simuchaya, but people are very often naively date texts according to that. And in fact, you have to be realize that nothing is more susceptible to having uh, interpolations in a collection of sutra citations, so it's really, really difficult to tell how oh, old the text is, uh, aside from the fact that it was translated into Chinese in the 5th century. So The impression of Buddhist pacifism is so strong that it suggests to historians that it was a significant factor in the downfall of Buddhism in India. Buddhist kings who seem to be implicated in a hopeless moral conflict. No Krishna seems to rescue the Buddhist Arjuna from the disempowering moral conflict that arises between a warrior's duty and the values of Ahimsa. However, we can see from the example of this scripture that buddhist kings had conceptual resources at their disposal that support warfare torture and harsh punishments the exploration of its intertextual details opens up an ever wider vision of a sort of buddhism strongly advised uh, strongly at odds with pacifist stereotypes here an armed bodyguard accompanies the buddha and threatens to destroy those who offend him torture can be an expression of compassion capital punishment may be encouraged Body armor and a side arm are among the most important metaphors and symbols of the power of compassion. In fact, I'd say they're even the principal metaphors. Celestial Bodhisattvas support campaigns of conquest to spread the influence of the dharma, and kings commit mass violence against giants and Hindus. The Arya Bodhisattva Gotra or Payavishya, Bikravana Vikravana, Yardesha Sutra, otherwise known as the Arya Satchika engages a variety of questions in relation to violence. Warfare and punishment. As the two different titles indicate, his name has been a source of confusion. That's uh, uh, catalogued under its long title, it is more often cited and better known as the Satyaka Parivarta. Uh, I would translate the long name as the noble teaching through manifestations and the subject of skillful means in the bodhisattva's field of activity. With apparent irony and humor, the sutra describes a dialogue between an ascetic named Satyavacha Nirgunta Putra and a king. The character by this name also appears in two Pali as a clever and aggressive anti-Buddhist debater. And for any of you folks who are graduate students, I'd say always remember that you never know what's going on in the Mahayana Sutra until you find out who the characters are in the Pali uh, literature. In this earlier account of Satyavacca, he makes the mistake of challenging the Buddha to debate with highly insulting language. Subsequently, when he hesitates to answer a key question during the debate, the Buddha's menacing armed bodyguard, Vajrapani, threats to split his head over with a blazing Vajra. The, the Vajra is, a, is a basically a handheld weapon, I'm not sure. <coughs> Some of you don't know that. Uh, that would later become the primary symbol of the power of compassion. The key question put to Satyabhaja by the Buddha shows a connection to the later Mahayana Sutra. The question was whether an anointed king exercises the power in his own realm to execute those who should be executed. The Buddha's argument hinges on the fact that this is true. Satyabhaja concedes that an anointed king would indeed exercise the power of capital punishment and that he would be worthy, arahati, to exercise it. He strengthens the point by saying that it is even true for groups and societies that do not have such kings. So the Buddha forces Satyabhaja under the threat of death to concede that an anointed king both has and merits the power to execute criminals. The violence of Satyabhati's situation is typical and shows how dangerous the world of Indian ascetics was imagined to be. Those who lost debates are often described as being swallowed up by the earth, drowning in the Ganga, or spitting up blood and dying. It was not uncommon for the stakes to be death or conversion. The threat to split someone's head was a typical of intellectual challenges Occurs often in both the Upanishads and early Buddhist literature. The fact that the threat is taken very seriously is shown here by Satyavacha's terror and the presence of Vajrapani, who has often worked violence on the Buddhist behalf from early mainstream Buddhist literature to late Tantric literature. We'll talk a little about that later. The legends of such debates often end in the forfeit of the losing community's right to assemble or even being forced to fund new monasteries for the opponent. The relations between groups of ascetics are seen as violently competitive even involving espionage and assassination. The Buddha was depicted as an attempted murder victim on multiple occasions and even as the victim of a conspiracy to implicate him in a murderous sex scandal. One thinks of the attempted assassinations of the Buddha, the murders of Aryadeva and Nagarjuna, the wizardly battles of Shantideva and Dignaga, Dignaga's uh, battle is actually on the poster for the talk tonight. And Chandakirti's involvement in warfare. In the Pali account of Satyavachya, the shadow of deadly force hangs over the Buddha's debate in the form of Vashrapani. If legend and scripture are any indication, of the violence of the Indian Buddhist imagination, and probably the violence of their world, was extreme. It's no wonder that in Tibet, debate has evolved into an intensely physical, intellectual, martial art. Uh, in this much later Mahayana Sutra, which existed as early as the fifth century. Satchivacca is actually a manifestation of the Buddha. Perhaps he does not manifest in this context as a Buddhist monk or deity, because he teaches on topics such as military tactics, which are forbidden for monks to to discuss. He finds himself again in a potentially deadly situation for an ascetic, an audience with a vicious king. The king's Sanskrit name, uh, Chanda Pradhyota, means uh, or Jyota the Cruel, just as the great Ashoka was called the Chanda Ashoka. He's a stock character in Buddhist lore. Uh, Michael Zimmerman tracked him down in the Mula-Sevastavada Vinaya and described him as a mean little bald guy who would kill anyone on the spot who said the word fat. <laughs> he was also said to have massacred 80,000 Brahmanas, uh, even though he's called the Dharma Raja. I found him elsewhere in uh, Sarvastivada Abhidhamma literature in ethical tales focused on violence. In one case, he threatens to kill a Buddhist teacher. In another, he savagely beats a young novice monk who presumes to teach his harem. Zimmerman notes that the king is described as ruling according to the Dharma, even though he's being seen as dangerously violent. This illustrates the usual attitude of ambiguity towards kings in Buddhism, however in contrast to the continuing tendency of modern scholars to romanticize Ashoka, who, according to Buddhist legend, similarly slaughtered 18,000 giants, among other atrocities, long after he became Dharma Ashoka. Some note that he renounces such violence after this program takes the life of his own brother, but the legend depicts Ashoka continuing to commit horrible acts of violence even after this episode. In the literary accounts, dangerous Buddhist kings have a disturbing tendency for mass violence against non-Buddhists. In some cases, even uh, it's the Buddha in the past life who performs these uh, massacres. It's not entirely clear, but the irony and absurdity of budget's encounter suggests a comical aspect. After budget advises him against capital punishment, the king calls for a public assembly with the Buddha and proclaims that anybody who doesn't show up will be executed. When Satyabhaji criticizes it for being excessively due to comes very close to killing him. He saves his own life by apologizing for criticizing the king in the presence of others. And this situation maybe, I think, is not actually meant to be humorous. Um, it's a little too dangerous and a little too commonly attested. In the Melinda Panha, the monk Nagasena tactfully tells King Melinda that he will only speak to him as a fellow scholar because disputing with the king can result in punishment. In another case, Shakyamuni is described as avoiding, directly confronting even the favorable king of who was fresh from impaling his enemies for fear of alienating him. Satyabhaja, advises Pradyota the fierce on criminal justice and military violence. Um, in regard to criminal justice, the ascetic warns the king against excessive compassion. This is the passage that's quoted by Shantideva in the Sikhs of Sentimental reluctance to act with harsh violence is a downfall of a king and leads to general criminal mischief. As in Buddhist thought, in general, compassion should not be mistaken for sentimentality. While manifesting Maitri and Karana, uh, generally translated as uh, loving-kindness, Maitri, friendliness might be better. The king should bind, imprison, terrorize, beat, and harm uncivilized people. Harming, terrorizing, (coughs) and beating clearly fit the modern definition of torture. On the other hand, the king should not mutilate criminals, deprive them of their senses, or execute them. Although historically Buddhist polities have nearly always maintained capital punishment, capital punishment is ruled out. This is in direct contrast with the Dharma Shastras, Uh, Compendiums of Hindu ethical thought, which generally advocate all three uh, torture, execution, etc. Permanent physical damage should be avoided in such harsh treatment, and such violence should be done with the intention of training the victim. Violence is a tool of both prevention and rehabilitation. Likewise, in the case of tax collection, the king should discern between those who are unable to pay by fault of their own and those who are paying taxes or squander their wealth. The Melinda Panha, a highly authoritative uh, Theravadan text, framed as a dialogue between king and monk, offers an interesting contrast by arguing that punitive violence should be understood as the fruition of the victim's own karma. How the monk Nagasena is asked, is a king to reconcile the Buddha's apparently contradictory injunctions not to harm anyone on the one hand and to punish those who deserve it on the other? King Melinda pointedly reminds him that punishment includes amputation, mutilation, torture, and execution. Nagasena affirms both teachings. If a robber deserves death, he says, he should be put to death. The king asks, Is then the execution of criminals part of the Dharma laid down by the Tathagatas? No, he says, it's the robber's own karma that causes the execution, not the Buddha Dharma. The king merely facilitates this fruition. This concept of the king facilitating the fruition of negative karma is also prominent in the Hindu Dharmashastras. In Hindu sources, the king functions as Yama, the lord of death and dispenser of karmic outcomes. Even the death penalty can be seen as a benefit from this perspective. The victim is benefited through relief of a karmic burden. The Satyagad Parivarta argues instead that compassionate torture that does not result in permanent physical damage may have a beneficial influence on the character of the victim. The death penalty is not allowed, partly because it disallows the possibility of reform. Regarding killing in battle, the sutra says that weapons cannot harm a warrior protected by good karma. The unstated implication is that one's victims must be ripe for their destruction and losing suggests a karmic failure on the part of the loser. The domination of vassals is spoken of in much the same terms as controlling criminals and the sutra's arguments for benevolent treatment of vassals are more pragmatic than naively idealistic. And this is I think uh, something I want to emphasize through here because we're going to come to this argument that Buddhism failed in India because it was too pacifistic. It's a, almost a lot like the young boys in Tibet are being disaffected from Buddhism because they think that because of Buddhism the Tibetans wimped out when the Chinese uh, invaded them. Um, so the, the, the argument for a compassionate regime and a compassionate even foreign policy here is an argument that sort of is I think, highly pragmatic, it's kind of interesting.